Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. Thank you very much for making us a part of your afternoon again today. I'm excited to present this particular episode to you. It's brought to you in part by our friends at the Medical Association of Georgia. They've introduced us to our guests of the day today and the uh, campaign that we're going to be talking about, the Think About It campaign. But before we jump into that, I always have to introduce our producer extraordinaire and engineer, Krista Baruti. Extraordinaire. I mean, the titles just get better and better. I must be doing something right. Voiceover expert. <laughs> uh, expert of many things. Sound effects expert. <laughs> um, she's, thank she's, you, CW. Her, her work has been found in numerous movies. Oh, my gosh. I'm, Some you may know. I am blushing. I really am. They can't see it on the radio, though. <laughs> well, uh, let's go ahead and jump in, and we'll get to you know meet our, our folks here in the studio with us uh, from the Medical Association of Georgia. On my left, I'm, I'm joined by Laura Cassidy Lori Cassidy Murphy, the Program Development Director for the Medical Association of Georgia Foundation. So thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to join us here in the studio, Lori. Thank you. We have Dallas Gay. He's uh, part of the uh, Think About It campaign. We'll be talking a little bit more about how you got involved in the program. So thanks for coming down and uh, sitting in with us today. Thanks for having us. And Dr. Kenneth Tenet Slack of the Northeast Georgia Physicians Group uh, and uh, one of the driving forces behind the Think About It campaign. So thanks for taking time out of your day as well to join us in the, in the studio, Tenet. Thank you, sir. So... From what I understand, as I you know became familiar with the the Think About It campaign, I was uh, you know uh, lucky to have Donald Palmisano, the CEO of Medical Association of Georgia, join me on the show uh, a few months ago. And one of the things that we talked about uh, briefly in that uh, interview was the Think About It campaign. Um, and from what I understand, I mean several million people a year uh, end up dealing with. Uh, prescription medication addiction or abuse and uh, you know and that even starts you know early with our with our young young children you know because we come home with them pain medication or or anti um, you know uh, you know neurotic neural medications to, to treat you know mental or emotional illnesses that have a prescribed reason for doing so but they're around the house they're available you can get access to them so even our kids are getting access to and taking uh, what should be prescribed medication for reasons that they uh, aren't intended for. So it's obviously a big, bad problem we're trying to stop. And that's what, from what I understand, kind of led us to the Think About It campaign. Yes. So can you tell me a little bit about its genesis and kind of what we're you know, trying to achieve by uh, bringing this to the community? I probably should let Dallas uh, begin to answer that question because sure. I'm a somewhat of a, uh, I came later. Okay. Into the picture. Well, tell us about your story, Dallas, and then we can kind of go into more of the specifics about what we're trying to achieve with the campaign. Sure. Uh, back about uh, five years ago, uh, our family experienced uh, one of our grandsons who started using prescription drugs for, for non-medical purposes while he was in high school. Started with uh, having wisdom teeth out and getting opiates uh, the first time. Gotcha. Uh, some genetic history there. He liked the effect. And as we watched that unfold, we, we were treating that as a, a behavioral problem, mm -hmm. uh, you know, quit doing that, not realizing that what was happening, uh, a disease was actually taking over his life. Right. And, and, of course, we didn't realize that too late. So I served on a large hospital board at that time, and as I got into the question of the, the uh, extent of prescription drug abuse in this country, I was absolutely floored as to how extensive it was, mm -hmm. and the fact that our society has allowed this to happen. So I took this to a small group in Gainesville, Georgia, and we started uh, around our hospital there, uh, developing a program, and then in 2011, uh, one of our doctors took it to the Medical Association of Georgia Foundation, and they adopted the program, and at that point, we named it Think About It. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, and, I, and you answered my question. I was going to ask, you know, in, in the case of your grandson, was there an event that, that prompted, you know, a legitimate use of a medication? And, you know, you described that. I had, you know, I had my wisdom teeth out, and I, too, had to, to, to take, you know, uh, narcotic-based pain medication. It didn't uh, do anything for me other than numb the pain out. I, yeah. uh, you know, so, um, you know, I was fortunate in that regard. But, um, you know, as you described, I mean, you know, oftentimes that's kind of how it starts. Uh, you know, I, one of one of the people, you know, close to our family, you know, experienced a similar situation. They had an injury that involved having to be on, uh, you know, a, a narcotic-based pain medication for a period of time and ultimately developed uh, an addiction to it, uh, has since then, you know, successfully been able to, you know, deal with that and, and is now on the successful recovery side of things, fortunately for them. But, um, I mean, I can only imagine, you know, the, the that that event for you and how compelling it must be to be part of this now well, let me just point out i think that's that's a, a scenario that happens thousands and thousands and millions of times across this country where this on starts to unfold but you don't realize the consequences of it until it's way down the road the fact that addiction is a change for life that's right that, that you never truly uh get cured or recover from and i think that that's probably one of the reasons why you know, it ends up getting down the road a ways before you realize, oh, my gosh, is it It can seem so relatively innocuous when you start. It's a prescription medication. I'm, I'm supposed to be taking this. They've given this to me for a reason. Um, and, you know, don't realize that it can actually, for some particular people, you know, and some easier than others, that it can cause some chemical changes in your brain that makes you need it. Well, that's exactly right. And there's a, a perception is if a doctor prescribed it, it must be okay. Right. And one of the things we try to do and think about it is to educate both the public as well as the medical community of certain things that they need to be aware of when taking what we call at-risk pres prescription drugs. And, and is it, I would assume that we're trying to eliminate just the abuse and addiction to, you know, whatever the prescription medication is, not just narcotics, obviously, mm -hmm. those are a heavy component of that. But, uh, you know, a lot of other types of medications out there can cause some changes in your state that, that some people might find some recreational pleasure from, I suppose. So it doesn't just include things like uh, codeine, for example, or Percocet, some of those that people know about. The three principal groups of prescription medications that are abused are opioids. Those are the narcotic painkiller group. The Valium group, mm -hmm. these are known as benzodiazepines, and probably Xanax would be the most popular in that group. And then thirdly, uh, methamphetamine, or amphetamine-based, not methamphetamine, but amphetamine-based drugs for attention deficit disorder like Adderall. Oh, yeah. Of these three, though, opioids by far and away are the most commonly associated with overdose death. Yeah, you know, I know for me as a parent, um, you know, my daughter was one that, um, you know, she's she's at Swift School, which is a, a you know a school kind of like Atlanta Speech that's it's aimed at children with dyslexia and some ADD tends to be a part of a lot of those kids and and we went through the process of you know the psychoeducational analysis and and in there they said yes there's a minor. Uh, ADD component, and we talked about medications for that, and we had concerns uh, about that just for the reason that you mentioned that in that particular group being one that ends up being sometimes abused um, just because you can certainly take it, you know, just as a pill, but there's other things that people do to it that, you know, I guess you can do a whole host of different ways of ingesting it. But uh, those were things that we worried about is, you know, are we setting our child up for problems down the road? But, you know, on that note, they said that for those children who actually need those drugs, and if they're taken appropriately, it actually can help them fend off tendencies that might drive them to medicate themselves to avoid frustrations and other things down the road. But, um, you know, I certainly relate to the, the ADD medication side of things and being a parent that has a kid that's in that space. Well, I would say if there is a, uh, you know, a genetic predilection, which is not always known, but I would say that in and of itself would not be a reason uh, to avoid using a, a one of these prescription drugs uh, if if the use is uh, has been well thought out and legitimate. Mm -hmm. For example, if someone has surgery um, and they have a history of uh, substance abuse, you know it doesn't make a lot of sense to uh, deny them opioid medications after a painful surgical procedure. 
much more important is to be aware that the patient has the issue and to monitor the situation appropriately. Well, when we tie in the the Think About It campaign, can you kind of take me through, you know, what are the major components of the program and the campaign and, and what we're trying to, you know, really illuminate through it? Well, there are two major uh, divisions when we were trying to come up with a model for this program that uh, we thought we could affect change with. Um, the, the environment, uh, the number of entities affected by opioid abuse is so large and complicated, we decided to take a very simple approach, and that is we have a public side and a professional side. And Dallas focuses on the public side, and I focus on the professional side. Mm -hmm. And that's the basic uh, format going forward. I would say that uh, the um, uh, affectation of change on the public side is, is, I think, considerably more straightforward than, than creating change in the medical community, which is, you know, difficult. Talk about, you know, the how you're addressing the, you know, getting the information out to the community at large to help them better understand how do, they, how do I prevent this from happening in my family, um, you know, to help them understand the scope of the problem. Like you talked about, we're talking about millions of people in the United States and including our children. So how, how are you getting the word out there to, to the public? Obviously, we're here, um, but what else are, you, are we doing? Well, early on, we, we developed... Um, we thought some very simple things that people could relate to and could remember. <coughs> uh, we, we had an uh, advertising firm develop a logo for us that looks like a pill bottle. Mm -hmm. And within that pill bottle, we developed four steps that we hope the public then becomes aware of the, the dangers of prescription drugs. And those four steps are, are first, take your medicines only as prescribed by your physician. Don't vary from that. The, the second step is don't share your medicines with anyone and don't take anyone else's medicines. That's, that's both illegal to do and it's dangerous because you don't know what else I'm taking, what that conflict might be. It, uh, you're, you're now practicing the role of a physician. The third step is to store your medications so that others don't have access to them. We, we find that of the prescription drugs that are abused, over 70% come from family and friends. Yeah. That is, we, we are the suppliers when we look yeah. in the mirror. And sometimes you don't even realize you are. Is you that, don't. Is that true? Uh, that's very much true. And to uh, just digress for a moment, uh, when my grandson, we finally became aware that prescription drugs were the problem. I recall that I had had a prescription for Lortab and Xanax. Neither of which I had ever used. That is, the bottle still had the original contents, but they were probably two or three years old, sitting on a kitchen shelf along with vitamins and cholesterol medicines. So yeah, like you do. <laughs> no one had ever said, get rid of these, dispose of them when you don't need them, and don't let anyone have access. Well, by the time I realized that prescription drugs were Jeffrey's problem and went to that cabinet, those pills were gone. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a common way that particularly young people start. But anyone who has that drug addiction will search your home and your cabinets and your drawers for those. So our fourth step of the, of the four steps we develop is promptly dispose of your drugs when no longer needed for your present condition. Mm -hmm. And we have some guidelines for each of these. And just to take one step further on the disposal uh, there, almost every police station now in the state of Georgia has a drop box. Uh, many other places then are under law enforcement has a box, looks like a mailbox. You can take your pills, drop them in that box. They take them to an incinerator. So uh, there's DEA take back days, and uh, we're really, really are making people aware don't keep your medicines for future use where you're self-prescribing for, yeah. for your own condition. Yeah, I, and I'm, I know in our own home we've been guilty of that. You know, you get uh, injured in some way. That I, I'm sure that that's probably one of the big things. You either go through uh, an emotionally challenging time and you get prescribed something like you described. You get described, uh, prescribed a Xanax or one of those types of medications to kind of help you know, in those times uh, you're dealing with that or pain pills in particular where you 
might take a handful in the first two or three or four days, but you know you really don't use it very heavily and very very often now you have some left, so you just think uh, if I have to have them later, I'll have them here, and so you keep them around. Just to finish that story, those four steps then have gone on to brochures, they've gone on to posters, they've gone on to uh, prescription bag inserts, and have been distributed through medical communities that uh, will be in treatment rooms and waiting rooms and pharmacies so that the public, as they're getting their prescriptions, have that information. And at the same time, it stays as a constant reminder to the medical profession that they have responsibilities in this area also. So the doctor's offices are starting to put it into their waiting room where someone could see it and pick it up and take it with them. In our county. Yeah. And we we hope to to see this across the state of Georgia. So made excellent inroads with several uh, major pharmaceutical outfits, including Walgreens and um, Publix, CVS. CVS. It's an eye-catching piece. Who's who's getting this to me if I'm a physician's office so that I can put it out there or if I'm a healthcare entity of some kind? You know, is the, the association foundation sending somebody out that actually will bring these by and say, hey, would you, you know, share? You mean to the doctor's office? Mm-hmm. Yes, we in Hall County, we have a mechanism uh, for that, yes. On the on the website, which is rxdrugabuse.org, which is the Think About It website, there's a place there that you can order these, these uh, materials, posters and brochures. And we've sent those out not only in Georgia, but we've sent them out to some 15 to 20 other states from people that have requested those. We've been talking with Lori Cassidy-Murphy, Dallas Gay, and Dr. Tennant Slack that are uh, all contributing effort to the uh, Medical Association of Georgia Foundation's campaign to end uh, or at a minimum reduce the rate that we have people dealing with prescription medication uh, addiction called Think About It. It's obviously, you know, it, the, the name is appropriate, I think. Um, the piece that you have here is certainly eye-catching and... and uh, um, one of those that would hopefully make someone stop and actually, you know, take in this information. Um, whenever you you got the program started, um, was the was the focus heavily in you know the physician side of things, trying to change the way maybe doctors are prescribing medications and what they're you know how they're contemplating the the process? Can you talk a little bit about the physician side of how we're trying to maybe implement the campaign and uh, affect those? Let's just take a step back just for one second. The reason this came on the radar uh, was because of overdose deaths. And this, these overdose deaths began to be tied uh, very much to the number of annual prescriptions written starting around the year 2000. And once we reached about 130 million annual opioid prescriptions being written, that's when we began to see uh, an escalation in in narcotic uh, overdose deaths. And that has been on the rise uh, since the year 2000. There is some evidence emerging that the problem may be, uh, the number of annual prescriptions may be starting to level off, but we don't know that for sure yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So the activity on the public side is, uh, in my view at least, really dealing with the issue on the downstream because mm-hmm. the, the... I have to have rely on my doctor to get access well, in most uh, cases. Again, the reason we are Somebody here... Somebody does. Yeah. We are here today is because there has been a relative oversupply of prescriptions, and that in turn has led to a, a great escalation in overdose deaths. Yeah, I know that, and obviously it's not... I wouldn't say it's a large proportion of the physicians out there, but I mean, you know, I know there was a kind of a rise for a period of time of... Um, you know, heavily in primary care and, and pain clinics that uh, really were just kind of prescribing medication. You can get, you know, you had a pretty good business. People came back regularly. You could get some consults and generate some revenue, but it was really built on prescribing. So, you know, it sounds I like would say that there are two broad groups of prescribers. Those uh, who prescribe out of a pill mill operation yeah. uh, are essentially acting in a, in a criminal fashion because that is a criminal enterprise that's a relatively small number of of, it's getting harder to do that it's getting much harder to do that georgia has specific legislation making it much harder to operate a pill mill type operation in georgia but the much larger group of uh prescribers are 
are trying to do most of them the right thing, but there's a spectrum of how discriminating they are in their deployment of opioids from very, you know, poorly discriminating uh, to to uh, discriminating in a uh, in a reasonable fashion. And my goal is to pull that group towards the discriminating side. And and in that vein, how do you do that? How do you interface with well, them? That's an excellent question. <laughs> how do you how do you talk to a provider to kind of help them? understand you know think about what you're doing as it relates to the choices that you have interestingly uh there you know for years numerous uh medical uh related organizations have put out narcotic or opioid prescribing guidelines and there are many online resources to uh you know get up to speed in terms of opioid prescribing but the fact is these all these uh all these materials out uh, out there have really not made much difference, uh, and clearly the numbers of prescriptions have continued to rise. Mm-hmm. Um, so after giving this quite a bit of thought, my own approach through the Think About It campaign is to promote a very simple platform for prescribing opioids, which involves some some very simple points that will point you in a direction of being a more discriminating uh, prescriber. And I'm in the process now of uh, formalizing that into a video and a short video and and trying to get endorsement from essentially all medical organizations in the state of Georgia whose uh, members have uh, prescription authority. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you have some, you know, for a provider who may be listening today, obviously a lot of the folks who will end up listening to our channel today will probably come from the membership within, you know, the Medical Association of Georgia. So if I'm a provider and I'm listening today, do you have, you know, any kind of basic recommendations as to kind of how to evaluate along the continuum from a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory to something a little stronger that has some opiates? Well, you know, uh, the the six points that I'm promoting are even more basic than that. And I think what the medical community has, again, there's lots of information uh, out there about um, you know, how to operate in a stepwise approach. You try physical therapy and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, muscle relaxants, et cetera. There's no short. There's just tons of, of all that information. What we have not done, though, is come together in a uniform fashion and decide on a very basic platform from which we can prescribe opioids. Um, so that particular, you know, in, in other words, I'm not getting... I'm not taking this deep into the weeds. Mm -hmm. I'm keeping this at a level where essentially nobody can disagree with it. And yet, if every prescriber does it, we really should see a lowering of the annual number of prescriptions. And I would assume the platform that uh, the Medical Association of Georgia employs through like town hall discussions that you have where people can engage and ask questions and, and hear speakers present data, I would assume that's some part of what you're doing along the way? Well, these are just now being rolled out. Okay. And, um, you know, there's much talk in medicine about, uh, you know, evidence-based medicine and data-driven medicine, et cetera, Mm. which has its place, no question. But it it doesn't solve, it doesn't work in all scenarios. And um, these uh, these points that I make are um, really just common sense, good medical practice, uh, and they're just more or less taking a disease approach to the treatment of pain and in, in, a, in a similar way that you would take a disease approach to hypertension or diabetes. Something that I know, you know, interestingly enough, I was actually a guest on one of the, uh, on a show that's uh, underwritten by a company that does this sort of thing, and they they do a variety of screening, you know, for you know drug testing measures, um, but also as a component of their testing, it's uh, the DNA type testing that would help a provider actually be able to get very specific both from the type of medication they might recommend for a person who needs some sort of medication, particularly in the opioids, uh, but, um, but also dosing in terms of, you know, this person might require a smaller dose than, say, I would have probably just, you know, in the absence of that data, might have gone with a higher dose than, than I would if, if I have a piece of data in hand that tells me this individual would respond to a small dose. Is that kind of having an impact on well, this kind of problem? Well, you or, know, uh, in my opinion, the state of genetic testing uh, is is still in its infancy. 
uh, and the, the overall uh, gist of that testing is to separate out those individuals who might metabolize uh, an opioid more quickly than another and therefore perhaps might require more aggressive dosing. Uh, but that, that's way in the weeds. You know, I, I'm more still looking. too early. Not not and and not. Well, no, really. no, no. I'm, I'm just saying, uh, in, in terms of good basic medical practice, gotcha. uh, one of my points is, you know, s- always start with the lowest dose and the lowest pill volume, and you don't need a DNA test to look at the patient and say, what's the least lowest dose and least number of pills I can give you to make you reasonably comfortable for a 30-day period, and you would be surprised how effective that very simple question is. Uh, that's one of the things that I've, you know, kind of been struck by, and we've talked about it within our own family of, as, you know, a surgery happens here or an injury happens there and you get prescribed, you know, Percocet or something like that for pain, how many you get. You, you know, it's, I mean, it is kind of surprising. Um, you know, just like you described, it, it, it would seem logical that they would say, here's here's a few days worth, and, and uh, if you're still having issues, we'll evaluate it at that point in time. You see, you're already talking like a good prescriber. <laughs> I, I don't know. This is me. really working. <laughs> it just seemed like common sense instead exactly. of handing me Thank 30 you. or 60 Com- or 100 of these precisely. pills. And it, there was a, a national article. Uh, actually, the uh, one of the um, executives, might have been the CEO of one of the huge drug testing companies in the United States, reported that he recently underwent uh, a basic uh, orthopedic-type procedure, and uh, without being asked, he was given a prescription for, I forget the exact number of pills, but it was far more pills than he felt like he needed, and uh, in fact, he didn't, nobody had asked him if he needed them or didn't need them. He was just given the pills. Right, nobody right. asked him if he was at risk for having a usage control problem or uh, and so he, he was critical of that. And now that you say that, I mean, that's another element that I haven't really paid attention to or really it didn't dawn on me because I'm not I'm not facing that problem. So I guess I wouldn't necessarily think about it. But asking your patient who's had a procedure or who's had an injury, do you have anything going on either in your family or with you? Where some you know where there's been some issues with substance abuse of some kind, I've 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 never been asked that. Well, there there um, are about three very simple high yield uh, questions uh, that you can ask a patient uh, regarding their risk for having a control issue, and probably the best one is, do you have a control issue with opioids? Yeah. You know, if you've ever been given pain medication after surgery, did you have any problem regulating your use of it? Very straightforward, simple question, and uh, it's high yield. And you now, don't even of course, have to ask it in a funky way. You can just ask them that question straight, just well, like you just ask, did. Never ask in a funky way. Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, in we terms of, you know, that. giving them a sense of, of judgment when you're asking. I mean, but, but just, no, no, just I, ask I, it this just like you did. This is medical information. Of course, uh, we rely all the time on, on the patients telling the truth. Of course. And so if they don't tell the truth, uh, you know, so if you if they don't tell the truth, you give them a prescription. And in fact, they do have a problem. This is where the monitoring part comes in, which you yourself just alluded to. You give a prescription and, uh, you know, a reasonable number of, of pills. And if you still have a problem in two weeks, you know, call me. Mm-hmm. And so from the from the perspective of monitoring, um talk about that is it more just a matter of okay how frequently is this person i mean it's their their complaint is kind of dragging on longer than we would anticipate for xyz problem uh, perhaps we should look at other medication options or talk about rehab well, and other types of things that, sure that, that might you know help the problem roughly about half the people taking opioids are in the acute scenario meaning they're after a procedure or an injury. The other half are in a long-term maintenance-type uh, scenario. Uh, and, you know, those are, are two different worlds, really. Um, but 
a, a very straightforward way to monitor if you don't know the patient uh, is to give smaller amounts of pills and have them return or at least talk to you on the phone. Because this way you get a sense of, the, of their pattern of usage. Yeah. If you just give them, let's say you do a, some kind of a knee procedure and you hand them a 120 Lortab <laughs> and one prescription, you have no idea how they are consuming that, what they're doing with it. Or they, right. I mean, they could be doing anything with it. <laughs> Right. So instead, if you give a smaller prescription, uh, and you, you can then see how much they used over that period of time, and it gives you an idea of how much they're using. So you, you mentioned asking somebody, you know, I'm getting ready to prescribe something to control pain. Um, asking, do you have trouble, you know, controlling how, of, how, how often or how much you take? What are the other questions that you should ask? So you want me to tell you these six give points? Me the, let me behind the curtain. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to cost you. All right. <laughs> Um, so um, there are six very, uh, very straightforward points. The first is, and I, you know, we could talk about each of these for quite some time. So sure. I'm just going to, you know, sort of go through them. Um, the first is how definable is the source of pain? Of course, in, in an acute post-procedural setting, the source of pain is generally very well defined. Right. It can be much more difficult to define in the in the chronic pain setting. Um, so just as if you were going to treat any disease, you know, you need to know how, I mean, you need to just have a sense of how well it's defined and that will, ha you know, affect your treatment decisions. Mm -hmm. So, um, number two, then you want to look at the entire spectrum of pain treatment options. Uh, and there are quite a number of them other than opioid therapy. And your recommendation based on what you were saying earlier is to start with something outside of opioids? Well, I mean, that completely depends on the scenario. Mm. Um, you know, this is where medical judgment comes into play. And, and there's no black and white, you know, treat the same. Every case really is different. So you have to make a judgment call really every time. But, you know, these six points are the what you okay. can always come back to. Gotcha. Um, thirdly, you want to do a very simple uh, screen for risk of addiction. We've already alluded to that. We've already alluded to uh, number four, um, use the lowest dosage, lowest pill volume that you can uh, to, uh, to uh, provide adequate pain relief for whatever period. You know, generally I think in terms of 30-day increments. Mm -hmm. um, you want to educate the patient uh, about the risks and benefits of opioid therapy, and that would also include, you know, this. Right. Um, don't hoard your medications. If you do decide to keep them, you, it is incumbent upon you to keep them locked up, et cetera. And then lastly, and this is, that was number five, and then number six is perhaps the single most important, and that is monitor uh, the patient. And uh, even if you screw up one through five, if you're monitoring the patient, you can pick up on an issue. And monitoring uh, really means you have the patient come back to be reevaluated. You look at what uh, is called the prescription drug monitoring program, which is an online database showing you all the prescriptions that a patient is filled both in Georgia and now we have the ability to share information across state lines. So you should also see activity from other states I see. as well. Um, you can uh, perform urine drug screens. Um, you can have the patient bring their pills in and count them. Uh, you know, there's several, uh, several ways to monitor, but the, the, the most basic is bring them back in for reevaluation. So, and I was going to ask you, you answered, you know, to a certain extent, you talked about the fact that it's possible to determine, you know, is this person getting prescriptions filled in multiple places or even other states potentially? Is that something that the physician is able to access? You say it's, they can just log into a website and, and type in C.W. Hall and well, my, my patient information and actually for, determine that? First of all, Georgia uh, was very late in getting a, a monitoring program. We were one of the last uh, states in the South to, to have a uh, prescription drug monitoring program, and unfortunately the program uh, does not currently have a source of sustainable funding. So in the year 2015, it will run out of funding unless we come up with another way to fund it. Um, but essentially, you, uh, if you're a prescriber, you apply to the program, the website, the program, and they ac either accept you or they don't accept you. And 
most people obviously they would accept unless there's something in your background that would create a red flag once you are uh, granted admission you're given a username and a password and then you can access it uh, anytime i will say though that they watch who you are watching so if i were to put in your name and you're not my patient um they you know they watch that because okay. they and even to, to get this program up and run uh, up and running involved a huge political battle over privacy oh sure you know i i know that if i want to go and get a prescription of decongestant i you know i have to show my id they scan it they and, and apparently the database probably would tell them something similar if i'm getting you know Walton, Walton D, you know, here, there, and everywhere, I assume that it's, it functions similar it, to that. Similar concept. And, you know, but I think it's interesting how the it's kind of incumbent upon the provider to enroll in that type of service access or not. One would think that if I do, you know, take, take advantage of that resource, if I'm going to be in a, a specialty practice where I'm going to be, you know, inclined based on my patients I'm seeing to be re- prescribing some controlled substances that it would reduce my risk somewhat to be participating in that. So I could say or in somewhat somewhere document that I'm evaluating my patient's usage. I'm checking, you know, I've got some concerns here, so I'm accessing the database and, and you know, you can actually mitigate your risk somewhat as a f- provider by showing that you're paying attention to those things, would, would, is that correct? Am I on the well, right track? Well, certainly in my world, um, I uh, access the PDMP many times uh, daily. That being said, I, I try to avoid opioids or minimize opioids in, in all my patients. Uh, however, something I take very seriously, and uh, the program, to some degree, uh, shot itself in the foot because, again, I, I mentioned, mentioned to you this huge privacy battle. Mm-hmm. The, it's, it's very privacy-restricted, uh, so that technically, according to the letter of the law, only I can access it. Uh, and uh, my f- mid-level provider physician's assistant can access it under his name because he can prescribe certain controlled substances. Uh, nobody else can access it, and I cannot share that data with anybody, including a pharmacist, law enforcement, another physician, uh, my nurse, nobody except the patient. And it's its purpose then is just to help you as a provider understand there's likely a problem we need to take some kind of course of action as it relates to my prescriptions with this particular patient. It's not to run out and then alert the world, alert the authorities, but it's to help you determine there may be an issue here and, and uh, we need to take some different actions. No, uh, that you, you are correct. But in having these kind of privacy restrictions, it, it takes a lot. You know, doctors are extremely busy and they don't yeah. have time to log on. Yep. Uh, that was one of the things look that at all I thought these things was interesting. Without help from their staff, yeah. uh, so that probably discourages a significant number of physicians from from looking at it, unless they have a high index of suspicion that there's something uh, a problem. Mm-hmm. One of the points that we talked about there, and the you know the six measures that we can take as a provider to kind of you know minimize the likelihood that we'll deal with a prescription abuse or addiction problem uh, is is store it safely. Can you talk about, Dallas, what you think, you know, when you're interfacing with the public, what recommendations you're making to them to to do just that? You know, should I put them in a locking, you know, under lock and key kind of uh, storage device? It sounds like you should if they're a controlled substance. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, there are a number of uh, drug lock boxes that can be purchased at any of the big, big stores or local pharmacies where you can either buy a combination or key or uh, lock up these at-risk drugs. And then that box should be put in an uh, inaccessible location also. You should never take these at-risk drugs and put them out with your vitamins and, and other common pills that are not at risk. Mm-hmm. We've been talking with uh, interventional pain specialist Dr. Tennis Slack, Dallas Gay, um, involved with the Medical Association of Georgia Foundation's campaign uh, to end uh, prescription medication abuse and addiction called Think About It. We're also joined in studio by uh, Lori, who's part of the foundation as far as their uh, fundraising development. And Dallas, something that uh, that I was curious about um, to see if it's had an impact is not too awful long ago that they passed uh, the, the measure that would allow a person who's in the presence of somebody who's obviously in physical distress or, you know, you know, obviously 
you know, indicating that maybe in an overdose type situation that I can get them help. I can call for help or take them to some place where they can get help and I can have some measure of protection for doing that. Is that having an impact here on this particular problem? I would think so, but well, I'm curious. It, it, it's having a great impact. It's called the 911 Medical Amnesty slash Naloxone Law. And what it says, if, if you're in the presence of someone who's an overdose and you both probably have been uh, engaging in illegal conduct, you can call 911 and you won't be arrested and the person in overdose won't be arrested. That's a wonderful law, only if it's known by people. Uh, if it's not known, it's, it's totally worthless. This, the second part of that law is called naloxone, and this made this drug, uh, which has the ability to reverse an opiate overdose, uh, widely available now to first responders and any individual who might be in, potentially in the presence of an over, overdose victim. Now, so that would, uh, I would assume then that means when the ambulance rolls up, they can actually treat me right there get it on board sooner than later. Yeah, this this law also uh, expands the scope of what an EMT can do with uh, naloxone. What what Dallas is referring to is a, a, a user-friendly public version uh, of naloxone where you have a nasal atomizer on a uh, standard vial of, uh, well, actually it's a particular kind of delivery vial of naloxone, mm-hmm. and, which enables you essentially to just squirt it up the nose. But the the law, uh, it does enable uh, EMTs to use naloxone more aggressively and uh, intravenously, for example. Okay. And so uh, if my person that I'm going to give the spray to is not responsive, it'll still work because it's still going to be absorbed through the nasal passages. Correct. If, you know, whether they're breathing well or not. That's right. Okay. Well, and I, I, that's true. Uh, it will be absorbed as long as, the, obviously, the circulation right. needs to if be intact. Right, if they get a heartbeat, yeah, but uh, they don't necessarily have to be breathing that's, robustly and, that's and true. moving around. That is true. Okay, that's and, good and, to know. And to make that clear, that drug, by prescription from a doctor, is available to any individual. They might be have an at-risk person around them. So in my case, uh, my grandson family would have had naloxone if this law had been in effect two years ago and they might have been in the position to administer that so you had a period of time obviously as you described and when we we jumped off on the show that you realized that we're having a problem right now we're abusing uh, prescription medication and that point you could have talked to your physician and said hey in our home this is what we're experiencing can we have a prescription for this for this drug that we can have handy just in case something happens that's correct, and uh, physicians need to be familiar with that law so they understand the prescribing requirements, right. which, are, which, are, which are not difficult or complicated. And, and I, w- I would hope that it doesn't make you know, a provider feel as though they're somehow enabling a problem by giving somebody a prescription for something like that. Well, um, I, I think uh, you know, there, it has uh, always surprised me how, how many doctors are really unaware that we even have uh, an overdose issue in the first place. <laughs> right. But there are going to be exceptionally few physicians who are aware of this naloxone uh, law. And so if, a, let's say, a grandmother walks into their internal medicine doctor and says, you know, I've had a grandson I think is at risk of overdose. Could you please prescribe me naloxone? <laughs> the doctor is probably going to say, what are you, I have no idea what you're talking about mm-hmm. at this point. Right. So the it, we're you know just really beginning to get the word out about this. Yeah, and in pain, you know, when you know, given the fact that you know pain medications with opiates in them tend to be one of the higher rates of abuse, um, can you talk about you know as a as a pain specialist yourself? I mean, can you talk about when when should I think about involving myself with someone? with your background, a specialty focus on treating pain. I mean, I can only imagine how difficult pain treatment must be because it's really, as much as anything, a measure of tolerance from the person. I mean, a pain for one person is nothing for somebody else. And, you know, for someone else, it may be the worst experience of their life. So, I mean, it's so subjective in its description of in, in its experience. Um, so well, I, exactly. That That is the operative word, experience. So pain is a perception. Right. And there is an exceptionally complex physical set of uh, physical parameters that go with that involving very complex nerve uh, and nervous system interactions. And then uh, once those signals enter the brain, then you enter the realm of perception. 
and perception is influenced by many different variables, uh, including your cultural background, whether mm-hmm. or not you have coexisting anxiety and mood disorders, many other things. Right. So it is a complex beast, to say the least. Um, most of the pain that you would see in the United States, and, and roughly, uh, the United States has around 320 million people, roughly the number quoted is 100 million or so report a source of chronic pain. So that's about wow. a third uh, of the, po- a little under a third of the population. I had no now, idea. It's, it's hard to know how, you know, how really correct that number is, but the vast majority of these patients are, are going to have pain related to musculoskeletal degeneration. Right. Yep. And much of which will be the knees, the hips, the joints. And, I've got a shoulder myself. And much of which will be in the spine. Mm-hmm. Most of what I deal with is uh, or is what I would call symptomatic degenerative uh, spine disease, uh, but that often involves the peripheral joints as well. And so I, you know, I, I look at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And so in that, in when you get involved with a legitimate pain specialist like yourself, I mean, you're not just looking at opiates; you're looking at a host of measures. Um, that are truly, as you, as your 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 specialty implies, interventions that you can do, whether it's injections of different types that would block a, a neural uh, pathway that could then reduce their perception of pain or their experience of pain. Um, you know, differentiate the practice that you have from you know a, a pain clinic where I can go and get some pills. Well, I would say um, sort of like the realm of pain itself, which is like the Wild West, the realm of pain treatment is also the Wild West. and How do I make the be- you know, what do I need to look for to be a wise consumer? That's kind of where I'm going with it. Well, you know, this is a slippery slope question uh, because uh, on the one hand, at the far extreme, anybody with any medical background, regardless of their medical background, if they have a DEA license, they can hang out a shingle and call themselves a, a, a pain physician. Um, on the other end of the spectrum are those that have been through the maximum uh, degree of uh, accredited uh, training. Right. And that's not to say if you haven't been through the maximum degree of accredited training that you would not be a good and qualified pain physician. Sure. But if you're asking me what is something I can look at on paper, I would want to see uh, that they were (laughs) board certified uh, in a primary type specialty. In my case, it's anesthesiology. There are other specialties that feed into the practice of pain medicine. And then on top of that, I would want to see a board certification of some kind in in pain medicine. Gotcha. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier um, was the fact that the Medical Association of Georgia Foundation is what is supporting this campaign, providing the, the, you know, the financial resources that are necessary to, you know, secure the, uh, you know, the collaterals that you're handing out and and whatever measures that you're using to interface with both the public and the medical community, which Leads me to, you know, to, to Lori Cassidy Murphy here with the Medical uh, Association of Georgia Foundation's development program. Can you talk about what we're doing uh, with the Medical Association to do just that, raise those funds that are necessary for this campaign and other initiatives that the association is undertaking right now? Well, we've been very successful in reaching out to our physician community. They've been very supportive of the Think About It campaign, thankfully. However, the need continues, as you can see or hear from listening to this interview, that there are many moving parts when it comes to a prescription drug abuse prevention campaign like Think About It. And the need continues as it expands into other areas like naloxone and helping expand the mission and the the message of the amnesty bill. So... All of those things um, take money. We're a nonprofit organization. The MAG Foundation is a nonprofit organization. And so Dr. Slack and, and Dallas volunteer their time to contribute to this in terms of reaching out to the communities and to the medical communities. Dr. Slack provides continuing medical education, all done on his free time. And so our efforts to recruit other physicians and again just expanding that message so that they know that we need their help 
takes money in developing more marketing materials so that we can do more outreach within the pharmaceutical industries and, and getting into those retail outlets. So, you know, everything's changing. It keeps moving. And without the continued support of the physicians and our community throughout the state, we can't succeed. So if anyone is interested in making a contribution, we would greatly appreciate your visiting our website at rxdrugabuse.org. Now, can you talk about some of the ways that you're, you know, working to raise funds to, you know, support this campaign and others that you're working on within the foundation and the Medical Association of Georgia? Well, we've done our own, you know, physician outreach through letter writing campaigns and and just one-on-one, you know, conversations with physician, phys- physician to physician, um, relating their experiences and ne- and the need for this this campaign to be a success. Thankfully, we've had private foundations also provide support for it, and again, reaching out to community organizations that have been willing to provide financial support as we visit them and and continue the message to them. Now, are there certain events that you host or or different things that you do that, you know, bring in funds that will support your campaigns at all, or just based solely on charitable donations, I'm going to write a check and send it to the foundation? Really, that's that's just it. Yes, it's just that's a matter of our efforts to keep costs low and and um, and make sure that we're expanding that message. That's the most important thing right now. Well, I mean, you know, with 7,500 members being a part of uh, the Medical Association of Georgia, obviously that gives you a good base of uh, folks to start with. But hopefully, um, you know, through campaigns like this and the efforts that uh, that you're obviously undertaking here with the collaterals that you're handing out for physicians' offices and so forth, they'll understand that this is something, you know, we have Georgians, you know, dealing with this issue every day and, and including our young people. Not that uh, a grown-up is any less important to us, but, I mean, nobody wants to see their middle schooler or high school age kid, um, you know, have this kind of issue or to lose them, God forbid. So, you know, thank right. you for, you know, your efforts to, uh, you know, try to keep campaigns like this running. Thank uh, you. Before we run out of time, do you have thoughts that uh, that you want to, you know, leave with our listeners, whether it's a provider that's out there or a family member that, uh, you know, maybe got somebody or themselves that they're dealing with before we have to go? Well, uh, on two issues then, uh, any family that might be listening that suspects there may be a drug abuse problem act quickly don't assume it's going to go away mm-hmm. take take aggressive action and it's not just a choice it's not simply a matter of just quit just don't just no, choose not to take it because it's not it's not that simple it it's transitions from the behavioral to a addictive disease that's there for life and i'd say the second comment i would make that we have to make greater inroads in the medical profession to do the things that Dr. Slack has talked about, to get more conscious prescribing there, to advising people to the four steps that we've enumerated, keep those drugs safe, get rid of them when you don't know. That's a big part of it. So any of the physicians that are listening, please join in the program. Be a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. We hope they do. How about you, Tenet? I I really can't add anything to that. Um, I hope that... Um, these six uh, very basic prescribing points will be embraced by the Georgia medical community at large and uh, will provide a sound foundation for more discriminating opioid prescribing. Well, I just want to say thank you very much to the Medical Association of Georgia for taking advantage of the medium and this media outlet that we're making available to them. I'm certainly pleased to be partnering with them to help them talk about initiatives like this that they're working on in the community to help uh, improve the health of Georgians around the community. And, uh, you know, all the folks here in the studio with us today are obviously very busy. They have things to do. So thank you for taking time out of your practice. It's uh, it's a big deal when you do that. So I appreciate that. Uh, shout out to Donald Pomizano and uh, Tom Cornegay over at the Medical Association of Georgia for for uh, collaborating with me and helping us, uh, you know, be a part of this with you also. Uh, thank you here and uh, out there. Uh, appreciate everyone out in the community making us a part of your day again today. Thanks on the board to our producer there, Krista. Thank you for letting me push your buttons. <laughs> Make sure you make an appointment to see us same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 